I um, have two aims uh, for what I want to share this morning, depending on who you are in this room. Um, I assume that most of us here are Christians. And if you're a Christian, what I want to do is refresh you in the truths that we are celebrating at Christmas time. Um, we all know that this is, I mean, it's not something that we're commanded to do in Scripture to celebrate Christmas. We don't have holy days or something like this, but it is a tremendous opportunity, isn't it? At this time of year, every year, to reflect on some of the most crucial truths, um, the truth of God becoming a human being. And it's also a great opportunity for us to share that with others because we're spending time at barbecues with people, you know, long, unhurried um, situations that we're in, social situations. A lot of us will be off work. It's a great opportunity to share the good news with others. And yet it's an opportunity that often passes us by because this is the time of the year in which you have the least time to reflect, in which you are the busiest, in which you are just around people all the time. And so now we have the opportunity here just for 20 minutes or so to meditate on, ponder, reflect on these truths and be refreshed by them. If you are not a Christian in this room, um, firstly, welcome. We're, We're so happy to have you here. We're glad that you've come today. We're glad that you're here with us. And if you're not a Christian, my aim is quite different. It's simply this. I just want to plead with you for 20 minutes or so to become a Christian. That's all I want to do for you today. I just want to plead with you to become a Christian. Maybe this year at Christmas time is the first year, the first Christmas, in which you actually believe these truths for yourself. How wonderful would that be? Now, both of those aims are impossible unless God shows up and does something. So let's, um, let's pray together. Pray with me. Our Father, these truths that we ponder, um, that we sing about, that we think about, that we see recorded in your scriptures, Lord, they are um, foolishness to many, many people. And to other people, they're offensive. But we read in your word that to those that you call, to those that you call by your sovereign power, they are the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so we pray, Father, that you come, that you be present now, Please, Holy Spirit, do a work as we um, read these scriptures, as we talk about these things, and illuminate in our hearts the knowledge of Christ. Lord, I pray that some would come to faith in you even today. And I pray that those of us who have known you for a long time will be refreshed by these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been asked specifically to address the question of what the relevance is of the Christmas story to us as Australians in the 21st century? Um, And it's a fairly sort of fair question to ask because, um, you know, despite all of the flourishes of the the Aussie Bible, um, actually the events of Christmas are kind of alienating to us in a way. Bethlehem is about 14,000 kilometres from where we are now in Hobart. Uh, 2,000 years have passed since these events. And so that's a lot of culture that has changed in that time. Our lives today look very, very different from the lives of the people uh, around at Jesus' time. We don't don't have shepherds in our daily lives often, most of us. Um, Wise men from the Orient, these kinds of things, kings, these are not part of our daily experience. And yet, of course, the significance of the birth that we're all talking about has nothing to do with the circumstances of the birth and everything to do with the nature of the one who was born. And so I want to say firstly that this story of Christmas is relevant to us as Australians here in the 21st century because it is a story of the birth of our king, 
the story of the birth of our king. We, um, we have a queen here in Australia, um, and some people are really into the queen. Have you noticed that? They get really excited about her, and they follow her every move. And um, I don't know, if she, has she got a Facebook account now, the queen? It seems like you know, there are certain people that are just really into her. And they look to her example, and certainly she's led an exemplary life, and, um, and they find this very enriching. But others of us, myself included, barely know that she exists, and it makes absolutely no difference to our lives. And that is a similar way, I think, to some, how some people view Jesus. That out in the wider world, you know, they, they think about this, this person, King Jesus, and they say, you know, maybe I've got a friend who's kind of obsessed with him, seems to be quite interested, and, he pro- he, you know, Jesus makes a positive effect in his life. But for me, he's just not sort of relevant. The scriptures paint a very different picture of who Jesus is as king. And um, to, to point that out to us, I want to take us to a prophecy of uh, Jesus. This is written by a man called Isaiah. If you have happen to have a Bible with you, um, please flip it open. Um, Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, um, this prophet Isaiah, about six or 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, he saw some stunning things about what it would mean for this um, child to be born as king. This is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see here that we get this picture, not of a Queen Elizabeth-style king, not of a sort of take him or leave him kind of king, but as the glorious, reigning, sovereign king of the world. Uh, It's it's summed up quite nicely there, I think, in the second part of verse 6 there. It says, the government, the whole government, all authority, all rule, will be not on like a parliament of people, or not on, you know, the people of the land like we have in a democracy, but the whole government will be on one man's shoulder, one child's shoulder here, But if you're a a sort of a careful reader and an astute reader here, you might sort of counter at this point, well, this doesn't look like it's talking about the king of the world because I see some very clear national markers there. It seems like a national king who's coming. You see in verse 1 there, 
talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are um, lands in, the, in uh, the nation of Israel. They are named after the tribes of Israel. Or in verse 7, it talks about how this king is going to rule on the throne of David. David wasn't king of the world. David was king actually of a very small part of the world, of Israel. So what's the relevance of all of this to us as Australians here and now? Well, certainly it's true that Jesus was Israel's king. And if we weren't reading from the Aussie Bible, you would have seen in some of those readings that Jesus was called the king of the Jews. He was called this repeatedly. Here is the king of the Jews. Jesus didn't come out of nowhere when he arrived. He actually came in fulfillment to many, many prophecies, hundreds of prophecies just like this in the Hebrew Bible of the Jewish people. And all of those prophecies created a bit of a shape there. And they were sort of going, okay, we know that he's got to be born in this kind of place. He's got to do this at some point. All of this is going to happen. And this was the king that they were expecting, the Messiah they were expecting. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled those Jewish expectations. And yet, in those same prophecies, we get hinted at the fact, and more than hinted, that the king who comes as king of the Jews is going to then extend his reign beyond that of Israel and all the way across the whole world. The, the most um, specifically Isaiah himself puts this is in chapter 49 and verse 6. And here he, he envisages God talking to this king who's going to come, talking to Jesus. And uh, God says this, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And this idea of the kingdom sort of starting small with the people of Israel and then emanating out and growing larger and larger, we see here in our passage in verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And I want to ask you, Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? We can become very pessimistic, can't we, about the future? As Christians, we can go, oh, things are sort of going against us a little bit. Things like the government restrictions are a little bit more. Maybe the, the march of progressivism, you know, it's getting worse and worse. But actually, the, the note that the scriptures sound over and over again is a profoundly positive one. I think it was su summed up very well in just the tone of our service. It's fundamentally a celebratory tone, a victorious tone. Habakkuk says, the prophet Habakkuk says, that ultimately the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, when he arrived, described the kingdom of God as like a mustard seed. It starts tiny and then grows into this huge tree that gives shade. So Christian, recognize what a massive thing you're a part of. That's what we celebrate as Christmas, at Christmas, that we're a part of this massive march of the kingdom of God. Not only was it prophesied, it's happened. It started in a manger. It started with a baby and then it went on to, you know, 12 disciples, who, one of whom was pretty rubbish and the rest of whom weren't that great either. But then it, it, it grew and grew and grew. And now here in Australia, there are churches. In China, there are churches. It's true. Non-Christians then recognize that you are outside of a massive movement of God in this world. If you're here and you are not a believer, you are on the outside of, alienated from, in rebellion to a massive move of God in this world. So, Jesus is relevant because Jesus is king. But he is further relevant to us as Christians because of what he is like as king. 
Now, Jesus being king could be actually terrible news, you know. He's sovereign over the whole world, all power in his hands. In human history, that hasn't tended to go very well for us when we've, you know, given that kind of power to people. But look at the names with which Jesus is described here. Verse 6. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Firstly, he's called the Wonderful Counselor. We as Australians, I think it would be a fair conclusion to make that we do not know how to live our lives. I think that's a fair statement. We have no idea how to live our lives. And it's obvious in the fact that self-help books have been at the top of the bestseller list every year since forever. Um, it's evident in the fact that we're constantly sort of turning to uh, podcasts or radio programs or, um, or therapists in order to give us a sort of life guidance. I've got nothing against these kinds of institutions. I just think that they point to the fact that we need good counsel, we need wisdom, we need leadership. Jesus is called the wonderful counsellor. And that word wonderful, it can be quite misleading um, because when we use the word wonderful, we think sort of pleasant. You know, at this time of year, you hear that, that old song, it's the most wonderful time of the year and it's sort of snow falling and this kind of thing. But here in this passage, wonderful, actually, it literally means wonderful. It means full of wonder. Don't think pleasant, think astonishing, think baffling, think incomprehensible. This was the kind of counsel that Jesus brought. It's so interesting, you read the Gospels, and I, I plead with you, uh, if you're not a Christian, read the Gospel of John this Christmas. That's, I challenge you to do that. Um, or if you're a Christian and you've never read it before. You see in the Gospels that when Jesus left a crowd after having taught them, sometimes they were joyful and happy. A lot of the time they're actually baffled. They were confused. They would sort of walk away kind of sad and perplexed because Jesus gives wisdom that doesn't come from here on earth. It comes from heaven. It was beyond them. And those of us who have been a Christian for any amount of time will be able to testify that sometimes it's what it looks like in our lives as well. As Jesus leads us, it can actually be quite confusing and quite perplexing. But then as you look back, always true, always right, always the way to go. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor. Secondly, he's called the mighty God. A, um, a common argument um, that is made, and it's surprisingly common for how obviously wrong it is. A common argument that is made is that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Have you heard this before? People say, you know, Jesus actually never claimed to be God. You know, he just sort of went around. He was teaching his teachings, and they were all quite helpful. But then the disciples got pretty carried away, and they thought, this guy, this guy is, is really good, and we could start a movement here. And they started calling him God, and then Constantine sometime in the third or fourth or tenth century, or d depending on how uh, knowledgeable these people are of history, invented the Trinity, and, and here we are. And that's a very convenient way to view Jesus because it allows him to be in people's minds simply an ornament of history. You know, he existed at a time. He was very interesting. He's great to think about sometime. But I don't have to obey him. I don't have to listen to him. The problem with the argument is not just that Jesus claimed to be God over and over again repeatedly, but because the prophecies that prepared the way for Jesus called him God. It's right here. He will be called Mighty God. And that means that Jesus is not simply a prophet. Jesus is not simply a messenger of God. He is God. And so when Jesus acts, God acts. And when Jesus speaks to you through the scriptures, God is speaking to you. Jesus commands us with all the authority of God himself. Thirdly, he's called Everlasting Father. 
I think the sense here, and I, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but from what I've researched, the sense here of father is the idea of author, beginner, that Jesus is the author. And so what Isaiah is getting at here is that this is, in Jesus, the creator of the world entering into his own creation. This is something that, um, again, I'm going to plug the Gospel of John, read the Gospel of John. If you've never read it before, if you're not a Christian, read the Gospel of John. John starts in a really powerful way, talking about how when God created the world, he made everything by speaking it into existence. He created everything with a word. And then John says, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the everlasting father. And finally, he's the prince of peace. And that means that wherever his rule extends to, there is peace. And that leads us to my final point here, final reason that the story of Christmas is so relevant to us as Australians. And that is because we all need peace. Just because there isn't war in Australia, just because we're not fighting any major battles, doesn't mean we're at peace. We're not at peace. And I think the evidence of the fact that we're not at peace is that we are so distracted and we are so diverted. We constantly need to have something in our ears. We constantly need to have um, Facebook open. You know, we constantly need to have Netflix on the screen because we are actually terrified of being alone, terrified of being alone with our own thoughts because our thoughts are not at peace. And that's why it is such good news when it says here in verse 6 that not only will Jesus' government know no end, but it says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Jesus came to bring peace. In the Hebrew, um, peace is the word shalom. Most of you will have heard that before, and it means not just the absence of conflict, but it means actually the presence of well-being, of wholeness, of things being as they were intended to be. And Jesus brings peace. There are three ways singled out here that he brings peace from these early verses. Firstly, Jesus brings peace because he is a light in the darkness. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Uh, when I was growing up, we played a game. Um, I think we just called it the dark game. We weren't very inventive. We just turned off all the lights and someone had to sort of run around and find every, everyone, you know. Did, did anyone ever play that game growing up? As fan? I'm sure you had your own names and your own twists on it. And it was a fantastic game because it's really easy to hide in the dark, right? And you got that thrill of sort of your dad, you could hear your dad's breath um, and uh, smell your dad's... I could hear my dad's breath. Maybe you could smell your dad's breath. Um, and you're just sort of hiding there right in plain sight. And it was fantastic because it's great to hide in the dark. Um, but it's also... Um, a pretty horrible idea some of the time because you can also run into each other and smash into windows and that kind of thing in the dark and that would happen from time to time because you can't see where you're going. The exact same two truths are true also about spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is a great place to hide. If you don't know who God is and you don't know what God requires, if you have no spiritual light of truth in your life, you can hide. You can convince yourself, you know, my wife doesn't know, my husband doesn't know, my kids don't know, my friends don't know. It's just me 
and, and this wrong that I want to indulge in, this sin I want to indulge in. But also, when you're hiding in the darkness, you can't see where you're going. You don't have a clear sense of direction. You don't have a clear sense of purpose. Your world is not illuminated. When Jesus came into the world, he called himself the light of the world. The light of the world. And that means that when you come to Jesus, he does a very painful work of exposing. Has anyone experienced that in your life? When you come to Jesus, he lights up some dark places of your life that you'd quite rather be hidden. One of the advantages of coming to Jesus, uh, who is the light, is that, I'll tell you a secret, he already knows everything. I play a bit of a dark game with um, Toby at the moment. He, we got a blackout blind on his um, window, and so it's, it's perpetual night in his room. And uh, sometimes he'll just come to me and say, Daddy, in darkness, in darkness. Um, and, and we'll go up there, and he'll run around and say, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see a thing, and run into things. And um, It's all very thrilling. Um, and what I don't think he recognises is that my eyes adjust almost instantly. You know, there's, there's light coming in through the cracks and I can see this crazed two-year-old, you know, running around and stacking into things. And that's what it's like with God. The scriptures say that the darkness is not dark to God, that the night shines like the day. And so when you come to the light, to Jesus, you just tell him what he already knows and then he embraces you and he illuminates the way to joy. Speak of the devil. Lights off for you, buddy. We're gonna we're gonna keep it. Um, so that brings me to the second uh, way here in which Jesus brings peace, and that is that Jesus is our joy in sorrow. Have a look at verse three there. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Who got that? <laughs> um, a lot of us have experienced um, significant pain in our lives and continue to this day. You, you have pain, physical pain, relational pain. Um, and in this year, uh, during COVID, we've, that's been accentuated in many ways. Some of us have lost friends. I lost a, lost a friend during COVID. Um, others have, have seen re- their relationship just implode before their eyes. Um, and others of us have lost jobs. Um, where is Jazz? She's abdicated her responsibility. That's all right. We all have all sorts of pain uh, in our lives. And as Christians, again, we're people of the light. We're people of the truth. We don't have to downplay that for a second. You don't have to pretend you don't have pain if you're a Christian. You can feel the full brunt of it. But what we believe as Christians is simply this, that there is more joy in Jesus than there is pain in the world. That's all. That's all you've got to believe as a Christian. There's more joy in Jesus than there is pain in the world. And thirdly and finally, Jesus brings peace by bringing an end to the oppression of our own sin. Um, There are many oppressors in this world, many horrible governments, many evil people, and Jesus will deal with all of them. But he makes it quite clear, Jesus, in his ministry. He tells us that actually the ultimate oppression that we face in our lives is oppression from our own sin. We are enslaved to our own sin and corruption. And so as we point to all of the oppressive structures out there and say, you know, there's this government over here, how, how could they treat their people this way? As we look at, you know, celebrities and their great foibles and falls, you know, and we point to their moral issues, we actually see all of those same issues and corruptions reflected right here in our own hearts, don't we? We see the same greed, the same lust, 
the same deception, the same gossip, the same hypocrisy. All of us, every single one of us, have undermined God's design for this world. Every single one of us have actually worked against the cause of peace and of shalom in this world. And so if Jesus is this king who establishes peace, if Jesus is this king who removes and destroys everyone and everything that stands in the way of peace in his kingdom, you and I are in line for execution, aren't we? Because we are part of the problem. And that's why we celebrate, and one of the kids summed it up so well, here at Christmas, that's why we celebrate that Jesus is not just our king, but our saviour. That Jesus is not just our king, but our saviour. Isaiah later on, this is one of the most famous passages in Isaiah that we're dealing with now, but later on in Isaiah 53 is another one in which Isaiah pictures this king now, you know, this ruler of everything, as a suffering servant on his way to death. And this is what he says in Isaiah 53. He says, It was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could have peace. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Not only did Jesus come into the world to carry the government on his shoulders, but he also came into the world to carry our sin on his shoulders. He carried every wrong that we have ever committed, would ever commit. And he died then on the cross instead of us. He took our punishment. He took our execution instead of us so that we could be forgiven and enter his kingdom. So Jesus is king. And uh, Jesus' kingdom is expanding. And Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of great peace, light in the darkness, and freedom from oppression. And as our king, Jesus calls every single one of us to bow the knee and to acknowledge him as king and to live in his kingdom. And as saviour, he stands ready to forgive us for all that we have done to work against the cause of his kingdom in this world. So if you're a Christian, rejoice in this, share this news this Christmas. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you, I invite you, I call you to receive your king and to receive his mercy.